Hello everyone, welcome to TechPond SaaS Roundtable. This is our first roundtable and we'll be talking about fundraising and the winning strategies for capital acquisition in uh, 2023. Firstly, uh, let's introduce our guest. I'll start with uh, Chris. <laughs> Chris, please tell us more about uh, what FunderPath uh, does. Yeah, no, thank you so much, everybody. So glad to be here. My name is Chris Som and I'm with FunderPath. Uh, FunderPath provides non-dilutive capital to B2B SaaS founders. Um, all over the U.S. and, and global. Um, we help turn their uh, MRR contracts into upfront, upfront cash. To date, we've deployed about 120 million uh, and over 300 founders, really proud of that. Um, we make it super easy for them to sign up, link their accounts um, and get cash. So uh, that's who we are. And then my background, um, kind of unique journey to where I am today. I'm a previous founder, spent the last five years on the VC side, uh, so I have that perspective to, to add to the group as well. And then obviously the founder path perspective, the non-dilutive versus equity uh, perspective. So looking forward to getting into it with everybody else. Thank you. That's awesome. Thank you for joining. Uh, Johnny, can you please continue? Sure. Johnny Price, uh, VP of Fundraising at WeFunder. Um, WeFunder is a platform that allows founders to raise capital from their customers and community as well as... Um, VCs and angels, we call it a community round. Um, you've heard of an angel round or friends and family rounds. Um, this is uh, where you can let your customers, community, unaccredited investors, as well as accredited investors uh, invest. Um, you can raise up to $5 million through a relatively new law in the US called regulation crowdfunding. Um, that yeah, happy to tell you guys a little bit more about over the next hour. Thank you, thank you. Thomas, <laughs> I think you're next. Uh, hey everyone, um, I'm Thomas Smale. I'm the CEO of FE International. We are a technology-focused investment bank, so we work with people who want to acquire businesses outright, and we often help them uh, look for funding or raise funding or find more money on top of what they already have. Um, we work with people who own businesses who might want to exit them in future, and often that involves raising capital now. Um, and selling in future. Sometimes it means raising capital through an outright acquisition over of some or, or part of their, their business. Um, and over the years, we've helped close over 1,200 deals. Genk, please tell us more about uh, yourself. Hi, this, this is Jeng from Tukel Accounting. Actually, we work with all those startups and entrepreneurs before they go to the Chris, to Johnny, to Thomas, to ask for money, for investment and funding. We act like a one-stop shop for all the startups and entrepreneurs helping with their books, accounting, taxes, cash flow, advisory, HR, payroll, and even we partner with our uh, third-party legal teams to make sure everything is, is in order and keeping all the, the confidence, all the confidentiality between client and us we make sure they get ready, manage the financials properly and get the funds that they require either from the lending institutions or from the investors. That's a unique perspective. So I really appreciate you joining in. Alex. So guys, I'm a serial entrepreneur. I raise multiple times from VCs, from angel investors, uh, not from uh, community like uh, we founder but I want to learn more about it. Okay, Horst, I'll let you present yourself now. <laughs> Hi, I'm Horst, um, several hats. Uh, one hat, uh, also early stage founder again, I think company number five. So um, I'm familiar with uh, getting funding. Uh, second hand is I'm also an entrepreneurs organization member, strategic partnerships. So in that way, I'm also dealing with money and partnerships and the current market situation. And so that, um, I'm also familiar with TechPun. Okay. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm happy to, to maybe learn some new things. And I would also say, Thomas, we are, have already met uh, founder path and more Nathan. I normally have met, but uh, a lot of the faces here and names are already quite familiar. Okay. Thank you. And Sebastian, your last, your last, please tell us more about yourself and your startup. Hey everyone, nice to meet you. Sebastian, founder of Digital. We're a VC-backed startup, raised 14 million to date. Uh, we're a verticalized SaaS business operating in the pet care. So we're building the operating system for, for animal hospitals. And on top of that, we're building for the entire ecosystem for, for pet care. My first question would be to you. Why did you choose to raise 14 million? 
you recently uh, raised 11 million CPZ. Please tell us more about it. Well, long story. So I think we need to go back to uh, 2018. That's when we started. And our first year, we bootstrapped all our way to having the first 50 clients. But the thing is that, one, we wanted to, to grow globally. So we started off in Romania and we wanted to grow globally. And for that, we needed more funds to accelerate. Because again, selling in the US, selling in other countries where you need people, you need to do things where, again, funds were, were constrained. Um, and then as we were growing, uh, we saw an opportunity to grab, to be one of the winners of the market. So when we looked at the, um, the pet care, the, well, the pet care market in the US and other countries, we saw that for most of the time it was a duopoly, which means that you'll have one or two players that will win the market. But to be that player, you need to be one of the first that gets to 20 plus percent market share. So it was a race to get to that position in the market. And that's one extra reason why we went down the, the VC path. Thank you for explaining. Alex, I know you are raising right now. Please tell us what, what your strategy is. Yeah, uh, I raised multiple times, so I uh, use only friends, connections that I already have. So I am not uh, doing something public or uh, talking with uh, VCs that pitch us, only raising from strategic angels. And my advice um, to founders is uh, they must raise from people that can really help them. Uh, if they are not at Series A yet. If they are seed, pre-seed, they must raise from people that can put something on the table more than uh, capital. Awesome. Can I add something on what Alex was saying? Because I, I think it's maybe important to... So as we were starting, so again, bootstrapped, and then we raised our first pre-seed round, which was more an angel type of round, which is exactly what Alex was saying of getting people that have experience in the space that helped us start thinking globally, avoiding mistakes, how to set up a team, and that was a great, I mean, the stage they were investing at was they, they believed in the founder market fit. So they believed that we will crack something in, in that market. So that was that was their bet there. Then with the seed round, the investors that came in, of course, the 2.5 million was extremely helpful, but the investors themselves were extremely helpful, not only with the network for hiring, but also to understanding different markets. So that was the moment when also we got Gradient VC on, on board, Partech by founders, and they're all investors that have experience in so many markets. And they actually helped us lead, they, they led the conversation internally for us on which is the best market to, to tackle next. So that was super helpful. And now with Series A, it's not only the, the money that we get, but also the operational prowess and experience that they help us. So they have great, like Atomic has great operators on anything from sales, uh people management uh coaching it's like you name it and all of that is like ha having super top-notch experienced people that can help us supercharge so those are extra reasons for for going down this path okay and now i have a question for for horst i know you are a bootstrap founder if you are planning to raise in the future what would be your uh, strategy you have multiple options what what uh, what is the best for you and why <laughs> Uh, to be honest, in the moment, I, uh, I'm a little bit going with founder path or revenue-based financing more. Um, depending on the situation, I would probably more do revenue-based financing kind of and go on focusing on my product and sales uh, because actually doing a fundraising round, especially if your executive team is not so big, takes a lot of resources uh, out of your business. So um, I would potentially bring a VC if um, I, for example, have to open a new market. For example, in the moment, we are primarily Pan-Europe mm -hmm. and I want to go to US and would also like to have, an, let's say, a VC with a strong understanding of the US market and partnerships. So I would say, in, at least for us, probably a VC had to bring more to the table than money. Uh, <laughs> Uh, to to be really interesting. So a little bit like Alexander was saying, get smart money or people really bring you forward um, uh, would be also for me a key driver. And um, maybe also bring you some strategic partnerships that you say, hey, uh, to get into that field, I need a strategic player uh, or um, maybe access to two, three re really big accounts which could make uh, change 
how we are perceived in the market. But uh, especially from what I observe from the current situation, um, we see money is not easy to get. Evaluations, at least in comparison, are by far not as good as they were la last, let's say, last year. So um, you would do have to do a little bit convincing just to give me money. It has to be definitely more. Okay. Okay, Chris, you have a, a happy customer right yeah. here. I was curious to know what types of founders choose uh, revenue-based financing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm happy to give give that answer, and then also piggyback on on what Horse was saying. I mean, I think to in your question around well, should you bootstrap or raise VC funding, I think as the founder, you should ask yourself the question: What type of company do you want to build, and and what type of ownership do you want to have? And and I do think you should take the market dynamics into account. Like the market is very tough right now. And so you truly need to have some sort of outlier type of growth or insight or, or something to, to really get the attention of VCs now. Um, and then obviously the difference between growing a billion dollar business or being okay, hundreds of millions and just, you know, having a, a, a more profitable silver growth type of business, which is great. And then I think like the opportunity, like is the opportunity truly there? I think so many, founders and companies were VC funded over the last decade that in the last few years that honestly should not have been VC funded um, because the opportunity is not there and, and the market's not there. And so I think for the majority of businesses and founders out there, bootstrapping is the way to go. And for that small subset of founders who truly want to go after it for the $10 billion opportunity who believe that there is that opportunity, then they should you know, look at raising VC. That's just my two cents on what makes a good customer for founder path. You know, we're really there to help the bootstrappers for B2B SaaS. Um, so we only work with B2B SaaS founders, those that have between 1 million and 5 million in ARR typically, up to 10, um, and as low as 500K, but typically that one to five range, who are a little early for traditional venture debt, maybe don't want the rigidity of a personal guarantee or covenants or warrants, maybe want to put off their next VC round for a bit, to put themselves in a better position. So we can provide them um, up to half, half of their ARR and upfront capital. So if a company's doing five million, we can provide them around two, two and a half. Um, and they pay us back over two, three, four years, depending on um, what we call a founder path score. It's like a credit score. That's awesome. You explained it perfectly. Thank you. Thank you for explaining. And how about you, Johnny? Uh, what types of founders choose uh, WeFounder? Raising for raising for the community. community. Yeah, I would say the best fits for WeFunder um, are companies with large audiences of customers that love them. Um, like I mentioned earlier, you can raise $5 million, um, but I think the, the really best fits for WeFunder, uh, as Sebastian was mentioning, and, and Alex, like, you know, not all uh, money is equal, right? And so ideally, not, not all founders are lucky enough to be in that position where they can choose. So for a lot of founders to be able to raise the money with us, and it's an alternative path for raising the capital, and that's quite valuable. But if you have a lot of options, then I think um, you know the the value out of uh, the community rounds is you're raising five million. The average investment on WeFunder is a thousand dollars. So you might have five thousand people invest a thousand dollars each. Um, so Substack is a good example of a company that just did this on WeFunder. They had millions of writers and readers on the platform and they thought it would be really, really cool um, to let those writers own a piece of Substack. They thought that might make them more loyal to them, might make them more passionate ambassadors for the brand. Um, it, it was cool how Alex and Sebastian were both talking about angel investors uh, helping add value. Um, for me, that's a dream on WeFunder as well, right? Um, if you have a thousand investors in your community round, probably the, the value that each one adds is going to be a lot less than if you're specifically choosing one angel who can add a ton of value in this particular way. But you have a thousand of them and say so there's a thousand people that can maybe help share that job description with their network or help can, can help open a door to an enterprise customer that you're looking to connect with. Um, so, so that for me is... Um, Kind of the, the founders that run a community around they see value in letting their customers invest and and kind of increase their ownership of the company um and then the 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 founders that are going to most easily succeed on WeFunder are ones that have spent years building a community building an audience of customers that love them so when you go to those customers and say hey you want to invest in us thousands of them say yes sign me up um where do i send the check um, and, and that makes obviously the fundraising part of uh, community rounds um, as easy as possible as well. And I guess that's easier for B2C brands. Yeah, for sure. B2C, I think it's a sweet spot. Um, we've had many successful B2B raises, probably uh, the, the, 
the high highlight would be Mercury Bank. Um, if you, uh, if you, any of you guys bank with Mercury, um, really awesome uh, banking option for startup founders. I, I don't know if any of you guys invested in the Mercury community round. They they probably sent you an email about it. Um, but yeah, B two B companies. So I think at the time they maybe had twenty twenty five thousand uh, customers. And uh, so they sent one email to those customers and 24 hours later had $30 million in reservations. And I think they had to pare down that they were massively oversubscribed. So they had to say no to a lot of people. But in the end, I think two and a half thousand uh, customers uh, invested an average of $2,000 each. Um, so it can definitely be very, very valuable for B2B companies as well. But yeah, because of the larger audience size, B2C tends to be the sweet spot. That's awesome. That's awesome. Thomas, I have a question for you. I know you invested in a lot of uh, companies. From an investment perspective, what are you looking at uh, at a company? Do you prefer them to be bootstrap? Do you prefer them to raise some funding? What can you tell we us about? We usually work uh, with, yeah, we usually work with work on behalf of people who are investing. So we're not necessarily investing our own money. We're helping okay. acquirers or investors find businesses they want to get involved in. So generally speaking those people do not care if a business has external funding or not often you add complexity if there's external funding which i think is why companies like founder path are popular at the moment and becoming more popular because you don't necessarily have all of the restrictions you might have if you've raised venture capital if you've raised venture capital often you have like a minimum amount you can sell your business for or exit for to make it worthwhile whereas if you're using revenue-based financing it doesn't really matter because you just need to pay back that funding amount there's no restrictions over um, what you have to do and obviously if you're bootstrapped and you have no external capital then you don't have any restrictions at all when it comes to selling so from an investment perspective or a buyer perspective that's more restrictive but the differentiation is more the fact that the founder in that situation has control it's not necessarily the fact it hasn't got funding or it has got funding Hence why I think, like I said, companies like Founderbath are becoming more popular because it gives founders a lot more flexibility than they might have just raising capital. And the same with WeFunder as well. You don't necessarily have all of the restrictions you might have going to like a household name VC who might own 10% of your business, but you can't really do anything because you're at the mercy of whoever they've put on your board or whatever it might be. Yeah, totally. No, no board seats on the on the WeFunder path. Yeah. Okay, uh, guys, this is a roundtable. It's not a webinar, so it's not about me or ourselves. So please think about the questions for each other. But before that, I have a question for uh, for Genk. From a CFO perspective, what should a founder uh, have in view? Uh, be uh, be careful at before uh, raising investment. Before raising investment, I'll actually have. Like a tree advice. Would it be okay, Christian, if I kind of share a few slides? Let Let's me see. try. Let's try. Yeah. Let me try. Uh, window. Uh, you tell me if it's visible. <clears throat> it is yes. excellent. So lo lots of <clears throat> founders, startups, entrepreneurs in, in SaaS industry and many other industries are a bit pessimistic for the right reasons. And if you, if you look at it in 2020, 21, the central bank interest rates were like averaging at 2%. Uh, but then in 2022, you know, the whole world, the recession talks and all that stuff, the interest rates started to go up, right? And then this is the OECD consumer confidence indicators. A hundred is like uh, the, the average indicator. In 2020-21, most of the countries were above um, 100, above average confidence rates. And in 2022 onwards, we see the decline. But you see the upwards trend starting in 2023 <clears throat> in confidence indicators for the consumers. That's a good trend. That's a good sign. Not a definite sign, but an, not a good sign. And then... When you check the final result, what does does it mean for me as a as a, a founder? Well, if you look at it all these years, 2021, these are the number of unicorns each month created, thanks to uh, investments, uh, low cost of money, and as such, it was like 
50 averaging, average 50 unicorns being created every month until roughly the beginning of 2022. What do we see happening in 2022? The number has gone below 10 per month. It's 80% decline per month in creation of unicorns. So I, I guess we're all feeling this. All businesses are feeling this happening. The cost of borrowing has increased. Consumer confidence has declined. So my humble point of view of this is follow the economy where it's going. That will be number one because the trends will tell you the money gets cheap. The investors start to invest. Consumers will start to spend. And even if you're in B2B business, big enterprises will stop cost saving and will start investing. Follow the economy. That's very important. Please do not ignore this. The, the second thing is prioritize and balance your borrowing versus um, investors. Um, what I mean is investment, when you want to get an investor, are you investing or are you gambling? So uh, Sebastian nicely mentioned that how he got the, the investors and, and, and also Horst mentioned that uh, he was going to ask go like from a source like FounderPath, a revenue based uh, funding. Maybe this is the right time to try that path versus going after investors. Um, it's, it's more of the timing where you are as a business and the, where the economy is. But when you do that, please make sure you're not getting money to gamble. You're making sure you're making it for an investment, right? That's very important. Is it the right time? Do you have a rock solid plan? That is very important, whether you're borrowing, whether you're chasing investors. And the other part is we all talked about it, uh, targeting for investors. So depending on which stage your business is, do you have an MVP, you just started selling, you're in the game, are you in a high growth pace? Uh, Sebastian nicely mentioned that they went after um, big funds when they wanted to go uh, global. That's what Horst mentioned as well, right? Uh, currently he's in, in Pan-Europe and he's okay with revenue-based funding, but he wants to go into the States, in the to US, that's when he might consider a VC. So though those are the games, there are different types of investors, there are different types of funding. Make your game plan, get this, get this there, make your game plan. That will be a quick summary, Christian. Thank you so much. It was a fantastic presentation. Uh, now to open a, a bit the, the questions and the discussion. I know I have a, I have a, there are a lot of angel investors here. What are you looking at when you are uh, investing? Alex, I'll let, you, I'll let you start first. Me, as an angel? Yes. I, I, currently, I, I'm focusing on TechPond, so I'm not the active investor, angel investor. Only if I find, I don't know, a very close friend that is raising, I will help him with, I don't know, 10K, 20K. But uh, uh, I am looking at the founder because I invest pre-seed, kind of. So uh, as a personality, if they are passionate about what he's building and if he really have uh, the, the power to continue and it's hard because we all know, guys, it's not easy to run a company. It's not easy at all. It's hard. And not everyone on this planet, 7 billion people can do it. Uh, so I, am, I will look like a person that is like me, doesn't matter what and how he will achieve his goals and uh, will uh, when it's hard will continue to to run <laughs> <laughs> okay uh, can i jump in here uh, christian Absolutely. so uh i made some angel investments obviously i've been on the vc side for the last few years if you're looking to get into angel investing i recommend reading jason calacanis's book called angel it's a really good playbook mm -hmm. um just highly recommend it I think if you are going to be an angel investor to do it right, I think you need to set aside a certain allocation of capital. Like you don't want to be in the situation where you write one or two checks. You really need to have the portfolio theory and do 10, 20, 30 types of checks. And so making sure that you right size your check amount is super important. Um, the smaller you go, the harder it is to get on the cap table because most founders don't want to accommodate a bunch of 5K, 10K checks. But if you have a special relationship with that founder, then they can make um, special allocations. So, Anyway, I'd recommend looking into that book. Um, and then for me, you know, I'm always looking, for me personally, at the VC fund, we had a mandate, right? Pre-seed B2B SaaS companies, seed B2B SaaS mm -hmm. companies outside of Silicon Valley. For the angel investment side, 
you have the luxury of investing what you like and who you like and uh, things you want to see, you know, built in the world. And I think that's super powerful and exciting. So, but yeah, at the very early stages yeah, for-, for angel checks, it comes down to the founder and why they're the best in the world to execute on this exact problem. Um, and uh, yeah. Uh, I'll be a little obnoxious Christian here and just kind of uh, preach the we fund the gospel, but to what, to what Chris was saying there, you know, like 10, 10, 20K checks, five, 10K checks, like one of the hopes we have for WeFunder is to get more people angel investing. We think like the world will be better when, you know, more than whatever it is, 0.2% of the US population is writing angel checks. Um, and so we're about democratizing angel investing. And if you are just like dipping your toes in the water of angel investing and you're starting out and you've never done this before, like as I think it was Chris was mentioning, like that portfolio diversification approach is like very important and wise. And WeFunder allows you to do that. So the average check size is a thousand bucks. Minimum is often a hundred bucks. One line on the founder's cap table, but um, you can say, say you have a hundred K that you want to deploy to investing in startups through angel investing. You know, if you do it on a platform like ours, you can spread it around and make many more bets. Um, so the your friends, like Alex was mentioning, your friends might not be raising on WeFund. <laughs> um, so it doesn't always work, but there's at least, you know, startups for you to browse. And if there's ones that you're really interested in, um, that can, can be one way to just kind of lower the check size and get more shots on goal. Yeah. Anybody well, else that wants to? Other thing as well, what, you know, about the angel investors, like Alex mentioned that he, he, he kind of went informal through network, the people they know, there, you know, that is the community he has already. Um, in, in our practice, we're in touch with high net worth individuals. We'll knock our door, call me, even family friends. They say, look, I mean, you're managing all these startups. Is there anyone to invest in? Which one do you recommend? They have money. They are looking for a confident source to tell them this is the right company, the right team to invest. And it's a big burden on people like me, like us, our business to recommend someone because you're, you cannot give investment advice, right? But there yes. are people with money, those angel investors, individuals, high net worth investors, they just want to trust a company. And if as a founder, uh, as, a, as an entrepreneur, if you have a network of people, people around you who know your business, who get visibility to your business, see how hard you're working, how great team you're building, how you really make, getting results, then they would be your spokespersons, spokespeople recommending you to those angel investors. Trust is an important thing when it comes to the angel investors. That's what I noticed. Awesome, awesome. Um, and now that we all know each other really well and we have different backgrounds, let's uh, let's create an open discussion. If there's anybody that uh, has a question about something, <laughs> yeah, I, I have a question for Chris. Actually, I'm just pretty curious, like how the market over the last year, like I would imagine, founder path might be counter cyclical. Like as VC is like much much harder to raise, like founders looking for alternative options, but. Um, I imagine maybe maybe it's harder to like get get debt financing when there's probably pressure on startups like revenue trajectories as well. I'm just curious how you guys have been impacted by the market. Yeah, no, it's a great question and, and good insight. Um, I think your instincts are correct. So I think we're in a magical moment. We have simultaneously two things happening, in my opinion. One, awareness around venture, non-evolutive capital and revenue-based financing is just increasing. Like I think many, many founders don't even know it's an option to be honest. It's still very nascent as an industry. Same, same thing with, um, you know, your world. I think it's probably ahead of us a bit, but you know, it's, it's gaining in popularity and awareness. And so that's happening in conjunction. Yeah. The market, the VC market have been essentially closed. You know, very few companies are getting funded and people are getting funded, but you know, that has driven. Yeah to look for alternatives. And so I think it's been helping. So it's, it's, I would consider them both tailwinds. Now you have the Fed increasing rates. And so I think that the, the, the opposite side is that rates are getting more expensive. And so it's a little more expensive than it was a few you know months back. And so there's that constant pool of um, you know, finding the right price and making sure that it's palatable. 
but overall it's been tailwind. Um, Please, uh, Alex, you had a question before, so I'll let you. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, I will let uh, Cenk first. Okay, thank you. One of the things I see my, my clients is uh, we specialize in non-US founders and they have companies and businesses in their local countries. Like Horst mentioned is Pan-Europe, wants to expand to US. Uh, these companies, these startups has business in Romania, in Europe, in Asia, but they have companies in the US, they want to expand. Their businesses in these countries have uh, steady uh, ARRs, MRRs, and, and they're growing. They're setting them, but for their US business, they want to get funding, leveraging the entities in other countries. Um, and they're struggling because your business, US business is starting. They cannot get revenue-based funding, but other countries are not as open as US when it comes to getting the fundings. Uh, in this global world, how can we help them get all, this, all those legal entities and their revenue streams in different countries be seen as a bucket and they get funding from that bucket? Any ideas? Hmm. Thomas. Can you just go over that question again, just in like slightly simpler terms, like what's the <laughs> direct question? Um, a company, which a US company, which is newly uh, set up uh, to expand in the US, but has subsidies in different European countries and Asian countries. And those subsidies are making money, nice ARRs and growths. And they want to get funding to their US company, leveraging the ARRs, the revenue streams in their European companies. Yeah, I mean, I think in general, you can't go to a bank. A bank's not going to be particularly helpful. You might be able to get a bank account, but you're not going to get anything beyond that. You might struggle, and Chris, correct me if I'm wrong, with a company like Founderpath, because you don't have that US existing revenue yet. I mean, the most obvious way to do it is fund it from your European company, so borrow money in Europe and transfer it to the US. I'd say the vast majority of clients we work with don't necessarily care where a business is, is based, as long as you can kind of follow the money and follow where the, the customers are. So if you have a, we work with lots and lots of clients who have businesses based outside of the US, but they have a US entity. So shouldn't really be a problem from, from, from that perspective. So I guess the short answer is it shouldn't really matter as long as your European company is, is doing well, but you can't necessarily rely on the most traditional form of fa financing, i.e. going to a bank, because they're not going to help you. But I think on this panel, at least, we have a pretty diverse mix of people from lots of different countries and lots of different locations. And I think most of us have done business in the US without necessarily being physically present in the US. So while I'm currently sat in New York, I built the business for most of my life sat in London. It never necessarily affected me doing business in the US. Okay. okay. Uh, Horst, I know you have a question, but please uh, rejoin again so we can uh, we can record you. <laughs> so I, I, I also have a question for Johnny. Please. Uh, so Johnny, um, we are currently raising, but I use only our network we are we have a big community so we it's very easy for us to to raise capital but how can i manage the uh, discussion with our investors if we will use uh, also we funder for example we we will raise around from around uh, 12 people right now uh, if we will use we funder and we will have 500 investors how we will have the communication with them how uh, how to keep these people informed about our activity and so on? Yeah, great question. So I think the expectations around information rights, both in the contract, uh, are quite different with a community round typically. Um, so your WeFunder investors, for example, don't have the same information rights that a, that a VC has or an angel might have. Um, and then in terms of more practically, actually, you know, conversations, um, I think the the kind of pattern and the paradigm that founders typically want to be in is kind of pushing updates one way. Even that you're under no obligation to do. We think it's good. Obviously, we love it. 
if you founders are updating investors on how the business is going and uh, more importantly going back to what i was saying earlier like you should you should probably only do we fund especially if you don't really need the money like you can raise money in other places you should only do a community round if you see value in recruiting this army of ambassadors right and if you see value in that then it probably makes sense for you to keep them engaged right and so maybe it's like a quarterly um email update maybe it doesn't have the same sensitive information that you might send to vcs or to your board or whatever um, but at least you're kind of engaging and keeping keeping your investors up to date with new product releases or how they can help and ask of how they can help you. Um, and I think, you know, honestly, like it's not too much of a lift. Like sometimes you have people that reply to that and want to contribute ideas. And if that does get too much, then I've seen one founder actually invested in his campaign early on. And he sent an email to all of his WeFunder investors saying, Hey, I, I love reading your, your questions and comments and feedback. Um, please keep sending it. I'm very busy trying to run the company and make you guys a return on your investment. So I'm not, I don't have time to reply to all of them. So I think just kind of setting those expectations is, is very kind of understandable, reasonable. Thank you so much. Please Horst. I'm not sure. Can you see me again? I already see uh... <laughs> <laughs> my browser is blocking as a normal Chrome should normally work. Yeah, uh, maybe a little bit. Uh, we had also discussion about angel investments. I'm also acting as angels. Um, my pick is either I invest in, an, in a startup, normally early stage or seed or pre-seed even, where I see some synergies what I'm doing anyway. So I'm normally investing in something I have no connection points with. And uh, a second, otherwise, if I would um, do that in a more bigger fashion, I would no longer be operative in a startup because then I would say I just cannot afford to have 20 plus investments following up and do my normal job, so to speak. Um, I don't see that. And then I would be probably go a little bit, um, I think, Johnny was also saying that, or no, Chris was saying that, um, um, more a portfolio strategy. So instead of trying to do the cherry picking and hopefully be right, uh, probably go more with a fund or uh, another vehicle to which I like or where I like, the, let's say, the philosophy, how they invest, and then go go wide uh, and, and hope maybe... Uh, uh, in average, it works out the way I want to, um, um, because otherwise, if you have not enough tickets in the game, the probability that you just lose is quite high, <laughs> by statistics, so to speak. Yeah, um, you, you, uh, there's enough books about it. Why you want to have a portfolio and why you want to have a big portfolio if you do investment. Um, what I see now from my all my other startup friends. They are quite in a pinch because if they have done, uh, especially financing rounds last year, or one and a half years ago, they are now in the situation they would have to do a down round. So pretty much all the investors telling them, you please extend your runway, please extend the runway or do some cost cutting or go from cash flow negative to at least cash flow neutral somehow. Yeah, so um, pretty, pretty dire situation. In that way, so we had an interesting situation. Normally, you are quite happy if you have a very good evaluation, pre-money or post-money evaluation of your startup, but maybe they overpitched a bit, <laughs> or, or the situation was just too seducing. Um, that they are now in the in the problem. They are kind of a victim of their own success of the evaluation of the previous round, which I haven't personally not seen before, at least not to that extent. Uh, interesting learning. Uh, even if you could maybe pitch more, don't always do it uh, <laughs> because you put the bar very high. And uh, and what I also would say um, that um, the, the general situation is quite interesting because since now some uh, startups are actually closing down, um, the, the, the climate is different. Let's say one or two years ago, everybody wanted to go to a startup because that's the way to go. And now I have sometimes ha, a startup, who knows if you're still around the corner in six months. Um, 
uh, at least in, in the German-speaking market, a little different vibe, I would call it, or uh, tension. Um, so people also know how long is your runway and uh, how is it doing? So the questions are uh, starting to change, at least in my environment. I think, kind I, think of, really, that, I think one thing that's really, really interesting with what we're all kind of touching on, right? Like Sebastian saying he initially bootstrapped. Thomas was saying sometimes like VCs can impede kind of control and like make kind of follow on M&A like harder, obviously with what Chris is doing, with what we're doing. Like it feels to me like we're at a pretty interesting moment where there's like a real kind of almost like rejection of like the VC paradigm that's been so dominant and like so you know, growing so quickly over the last, I guess, probably 13 years or so bull run. Just kind of curious, do you guys think that's like a temporary, you know, like a temporary kind of, uh, kind of pause um, of that paradigm? Or do you think this is like, it is probably feels just like it did in 2008 or 2001. Uh, or do you feel like this is maybe a more, you know, our alternative routes, like a, a revenue-based financing, uh, you know, here, here to stay and the kind of VC like hegemony is is forevermore going to be somewhat, um, you know, uh, lessened. I think VCs are kind of seeing that the, the investments that they make, those companies are not that agile to convert. They're probably going to be start checking different things how quickly they can cut costs how can how they can demigate through uncertainty they'll be more cautious uh, my projection is yes the VC's investments will not pick up that quickly will not go back that that high it will start but that will be more selective uh, that's the way I see so the platforms like we founder and founder path probably will have a higher share of the source of funding for for startups who started to generate um, revenue um, and and if the um, the interest rates will start to decline at some point uh, and at that point we sees will not have investors will not have other alternatives and they'll that's when they will come back but will be more selective that's my opinion and Sebastian you have an opinion yeah, about it? Like, thanks. Like, Johnny, I think that's a really good question. But I, I think to answer that one, we need to answer the question where about will there still be industries that need disruption? Because as long as that's the case, then you still need VC funding. And there's still a place in the world for that. As in, if for revenue-based financing, you need to have a product and you need to have clients and you need to have revenue. But there are a lot of cases where to get to a point where you have a product or to get to a point where that's case you need that VC backing of course you could do it with angel funding if you have enough angel funding and so again it depends on how big the industry is of how big the product is uh, and those are again areas where VCs that's the place in the market for VC but I have also say that being a VC in the past years it's super difficult given that again interest rates are going high pressure on startups to get to those outcomes is a lot higher so again it's 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 a complicated life now to be a VC. Maybe I'm probably again not a video or recorded, <laughs> but uh, um, my remark is I think also VC is not really equals VC. For example, in in US, to some degree, yeah, you really take a risk. If I see, for example, a lot of VC funding in Germany, they already want to have a validated product market fit. They already, they already want to see some yeah, they already want to see the traction, so to speak. So, um, kind of the VC mm -hmm. in Germany already want to have ticks all the boxes and says potentially no risk, really, just growth. Yeah. Uh, so that let's say seed an early stage that somebody say, okay, I'm, we are not fully know how the product will look like or how the market will react or maybe we even have to do some evangelization. Why do you need? Do we need that? Yeah, <laughs> I would probably would not go to Germany in most cases anyway, because the uh, risk appetite is not the same. So VC money is not equals VC money. And if you have also now uh, with your LPs for VC, you are careful to do capital calls because, hmm, do you really want to do that in the current situation? 
and and second, you have to compete with a let's say treasury bond from the U.S., which is performing let's say five percent. Yeah, uh, that is something so to consider still consider zero risk in comparison. Yeah, so um, I think uh, I'm agree with disruptive and high risk. True, but that also means a VC would be willing to take disruptive and high risk in the first place. Yeah, Sebastian. Yeah. Yeah, I was, I was just going to say that I think that's one of the first lessons in business school, right? Is that if you want high returns, you need to take high risk. And that's just like how, how life works. The thing is that what I've noticed is that a, a lot of people that go into VC, they're coming from private equity. And private equity works like the same way you were saying, Horst. It's like, it's the number is super clear. I invest so much, I get so much. I don't want crazy 1,000x return. I want 10x uh increments like growth per year and that's how PE works but you can't apply the same logic to VC backed well potentially VC backed startups where you take a super high risk but you get a chance to be a market leader or you get a chance to create a new industry so it's again it's a totally different ball game I think between the VC backed startups and private equity backed companies and I'm saying companies because again you're already like at a different scale of, of operations when you get to be at that stage um... Sebastian, based on your experience, I have a question. Last month, mm -hmm. I was in a conference in Las Vegas with AICPA, CPA Association. It was about accounting firms, but the, mm -hmm. the PEs and VCs, and there are some mergers and acquisitions happen. And one of the key themes was that the valuations are moving from uh, revenue multipliers to EBITDA multipliers. Now, the uh, investors are more focusing on the, um, how should I say, the financial sustainability of the business yeah. rather than the revenue growth or revenue multipliers. So a healthy financial algorithm, money-making, uh, controlling the cash flow, at least being neutral or positive, is a big multiplier impact nowadays. Do you see those trends? Yes, absolutely. And uh, if, like, when, when we raised the situation economically was already not, Super bright. I think we were one of the last startups, like trend of startups, to raise, and then the market really crashed fully. But when we raised, we raised because of two reasons. One was that we had high growth in terms of MRR, so MRR was going up really fast. And the second thing investors really looked at, and they were really like verifying everything, was gross margin, understanding that we have unit economics that can scale and work. So basically, the assumption was that, of course. CAC will increase, but even if we increase CAC to be aggressive, will we still have unit economics to be profitable? And that was something that we already judged against for them to in, feel comfortable in to invest. Because basically what happened, again, I have, you might know better, but as long as the multipliers on the stock market went down, then they need to adapt and make sure that what companies they bring to that level of being IPO material, they will get enough return for their investments in the new economic. The focus is growing profitably. Exactly. Additional revenues bringing additional margin. Okay. Guys, I have a question. Um, it might have been lost in translation, but what is this strange EBITDA concept of which uh, Sank talks? I, I work in early stage startups. I've, ne I've never heard of this concept of profit before. Just kidding. <laughs> yeah, but that's what I was saying. Eh? If you want to see EBITDA or profit, but I think what Sebastian is saying is, um, I had similar discussions. Could you make your company any time more or less profitable? So if you, for example, say we are not as aggressive growing, then we would be already profitable. And that is your gross margin or, or uh, yeah, unit or economics pretty much telling you uh, uh, how fast you could go actually from high, high growth to sustainable mode, so to speak. Yeah, but still, if you're already on such a stage in the business, it's it's already a kind of a luxury position to be. It is, yeah. That's worrying for the startups. What you know, Johnny, you said, and worse, what you're elaborating. But that's that's interestingly the trend. That's worrying for the startups when it comes to getting investors, rather than just the growth rates, the revenue multipliers, and as such, now a healthy algorithm profitability, healthy margins are coming more and more important. I think that is the message. You're totally right. I mean, 
a startup in early stages, how can it be profitable? It's cash negative. But how is the algorithm working? Is it going to generate money in six months or nine months? Is it going to be profitable? And as such, that's the trend moving forward, a bit less risky trend. Let's take Let's one take more subject. One. Uh, then, uh, then uh, then I would have to have one more question. Do you see a new player? Coming into the space, I mean, at least in Europe, you're discussing, for example, European investment fund for for startups that you maybe have even a new player into the game coming, which was not so active until now. Uh, you mean, you mean an investor? No, I mean government funds. Oh. I mean, European funds going into the or try to get into the space. Imagine if you have, for example, a pension fund which can invest only 2% of the pension funds in, let's say, kind of startups, yeah, or 5% or something. That would be already be a tremendous amount of money uh, where they potentially could make some profit out of it because they normally can only go in whatever, double A or A <laughs> investments. Yeah. Uh, so do you see also some new players coming into the game maybe to say, hey, it's not only a VC fund, it's maybe even a government fund. I know a little bit from Norway, for example, but they are normally not going so early stage. Um, do you see also some new players coming into the game? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, also I, I, I just see in the moment the discussions about it, but not yet it's happening. Um, that's why I was curious. It's governments they even most of them slowed down their incentives that they're giving there to their uh, startups in their own countries uh, the the way probably that will happen more governmental funding going into startups is when government starts to build uh, sur surplus funds so pension funds is not a surplus it's a saving account that has to be invested uh, but to your point they have restrictions the government funds probably will come into play uh, like the Middle East. The Middle East has extra uh, funds all across thanks to high oil prices previously. They're investing left, right and center everywhere. But that's not the case for Europe or US yet that they have all these excess, excess funds to, to invest a bit more boldly, let's say. Okay, I, I guess that was it. Thank you all so much for joining. You did fantastic. This was the first roundtable and it, it will definitely stay in history. <laughs> I'm super grateful One, for you joining. 100% uh, or not open rate, but uh, how you call it. So we invite six people, six people join. Thank you so much, guys. We're super grateful. Thank you for joining. Thank you. <laughs> Thank, Thank, you. Thank you very much.